Good morning. It's a huge blessing for me to open up God's Word again with you this morning. Um, thank you so much for your hospitality throughout the week. I speak for my wife and myself. You've been so hospitable and kind to us, just very receptive. We've received a warm welcome in so many homes and made a lot of new friends, trying to itemize all the names and, and make a, a running list of those. You guys have been very gracious and sweet to us, so thank you. We're, we go away freshly encouraged by God's grace through your lives, so praise God. Let's go into God's presence in prayer before we open up his word. Father, we rejoice that we as believers in the risen Christ are like living stones, members of the body of Christ built on that precious, dear, chosen cornerstone, the Lord Jesus himself, that shockingly, amazingly, we are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, that solely by your grace and power, as undeserving and as wicked as we are, we have been made a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people for the living God. God, we rejoice at your magnificent and incredible work of salvation. We want to bow before you in worship. We want to join that song of endless praise that, that is continually ringing out in the heavenly dimension, the hot spot of your presence. We pray that today we would offer up spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to you, offered up through the Son and empowered by the Spirit. We know that that is what you are seeking. So please, we pray for your enablement, for your help. Help us to understand that this is, in a sense, a divine meeting, a supernatural meeting. It's not strictly a human endeavor, that we're engaged in the worship of the living God by the means that you've opened up through your Son uh, into your very presence, having our sins cleansed by his blood. Please, we pray that this morning you would build us up in our most holy faith. We pray that this morning the message would be Isaiah's message. That Isaiah's message, as he saw the true and living God and foretold of divine realities, that his message would ring out. That it would land and register in our hearts and in our minds. That we would hear it clearly and directly and that you would evoke the response. Lord, I cannot, in my strength, I cannot do that. Only the Spirit working in hearts and lives. So we want to submit these moments to you as an act of worship, and we pray that you would meet with us, and we do so in good confidence. We come in the name of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Think of the last time you had the experience of being offered something for free. What goes through your mind at that point? You know, perhaps you're a skeptical kind of person. What's the catch? Is this really a no-strings-attached offer? Is what's being offered of any value, or is it worthless? We all know the expression, there's no such thing as free lunch. Uh, an experiment was conducted, I've heard of it done in different cities at different times, but the essential experiment is the same. A man standing with flyers with leaflets stands at a busy street corner passing out leaflets. 
And on the leaflet is printed simply an offer for free money, free cash. All you have to do is take the leaflet, return it back to the man, and he'll give you the money on the spot. So he stands there for a period of time, a few hours. Most people pass him by without giving him a second thought, and only a few take the leaflet and actually return it for the free money. And this just evidences the point that we're skeptical of offers. We think there must be a catch. There's some kind of string attached. This can't be as good as it seems. From our passage in Isaiah this morning, God makes an offer so incredible, it seems to be beyond belief. It sounds too good to be true. And in the context of Isaiah's oracles, it's the necessary response to the good news. So let me bring you up to speed and remind you some of the truths we've learned so far from the book of the servant, Isaiah 40 through 55, as we've considered some select passages in that section of scripture. Essentially, I think seen from one perspective, the story of Isaiah is a story about the kingship of the one God, maker of heaven and earth. And you're familiar with that story. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of the Bible, which climaxes in Jesus. So God became king over his people when he took them and formed them as a nation and brought them to himself, and he ruled over them by his word, the law that he delivered to them through Moses. But tragically, shockingly, God's own people rejected his very good word, rejected his rightful rule over their lives, and became utterly pagan and worthless. They turned to the empty, vain gods of the nations, the idols. And for this reason, God was bringing devastating destruction and exile. He was going to exile his people from their homeland. Uh, this happened through the Assyrian Empire in 722. They exiled the northern kingdom. And then this happened to the southern kingdom after Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah lived during that time period, the late 700s, ministering from Jerusalem and the region of Judea and the southern kingdom. Uh, the southern kingdom would also be exiled in 586 B.C. So these were very dark and difficult times for God's people. Isaiah, in many ways, was a prophet declaring judgment. But that's not where the story ends. The ultimate story of Isaiah is the story of what God is doing to restore kingship over his people. And that's what the book of the servant, Isaiah 40 through 55, focuses on. God will restore kingship over his people through his servant. And in a very unexpected and shocking twist, he will do so through suffering and chastisement. I'm sure you're familiar uh, with the much-cherished passage of Isaiah 53 that details that the servant of the Lord, though he is completely obedient to the will of the Lord, Isaiah 53 says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He wasn't a transgressor of God's word and God's law, yet he would be struck for the sins of God's people. The punishment or the chastisement that would bring God's people peace was laid on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53 details how this incredible servant, this one miraculous man, and Isaiah 53 is only part of the picture. In Isaiah 7, Isaiah introduced him as Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 11, he celebrated him as 
the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This one man uh, would be stricken for the sins of God's people. But later in Isaiah 53, we get a glimmer of hope that though he's struck down, somehow he achieves victory. The passage says he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So it seems he rises victorious and his mission is actually efficacious. So though it seemed like all the lights went out and he suffered complete devastation and destruction, he achieves victory. And the end, Isaiah 53 ends by saying, he will make many to be accounted righteous. That is the servant of the Lord, the one man through whom God is restoring kingship over his people. And then Isaiah 54, as we get the context for our passage, Isaiah 54 describes um, with assertions that are objective, they're general and objective, what the Lord will do for his people. You know, that though they had sinned, though they had strayed for the, from the Lord in very egregious ways, he is going to reconstitute them as his people. There are some incredibly sweet and meaningful words in Isaiah 54, 5. Listen to this. Your maker is your husband. God is once again taking his divorced bride, the people of Israel, and re-wedding himself to them in covenant fidelity for all of eternity. He had sent his people away in judgment and exile, but he's bringing them back to himself. He promises eternal peace and a rule and reign of righteousness. He says that Jerusalem's walls will be made of precious jewels. These are objective general assertions of what God is going to do for his people. And then in Isaiah 55, and you can open your Bible there, please. Isaiah 55 is the following chapter. This is the necessary personal and subjective response. If you want to benefit from what the suffering servant will do, if you want to be a beneficiary of this very good news, this news that sounds too good to be true, behold your God. He's coming as conquering king. He's coming as warrior shepherd to tend his lambs, to gather his flock and care for his people. Those are the objective and general assertions, but there's a necessary personal subjective response. If you want to benefit from the salvation that God is freely offering, you must respond. And that's what Isaiah covers for us. This is the message of Isaiah 55. Believe in your God. Isaiah 40, it was behold your God in his splendor and his majesty. Isaiah 44, which we covered on Wednesday, was become like your God. Whether you worship false gods and the gods of the pagans, you'll become vain and worthless. If you worship the true and living God through the way he's opened up, you'll be renewed in the divine image, humanity as it was meant to be. And this, um, this section, Isaiah 55, rounds off the book of the servant with an impassioned plea for the right response. You and I have to personally, each one of us subjectively, the nations have to respond to the good news. And this is the response that God demands for this incredible climactic good news. Believe in your God is the thematic statement or the message of this. The passage overall answers the question, how should we respond to the word of the Lord about the Messiah 
that's been conveyed in the book of the servant. What does God require of us? So this passage, Isaiah 55, neatly divides into two sections. So generally speaking, the message will develop in two points. And the first thing to be noted is this. God freely calls the thirsty, the famished, and the broke. That's the first part of the message today. God freely calls the thirsty, the famished, and the broke. Uh, Let me make a quick comment about Isaiah's style. It would seem that Isaiah works best in poetry as opposed to prose or more direct kinds of language and speech. And so this first section, uh, most of the first six verses develop in poetic imagery, imagery to powerfully reinforce his point, the necessary response to the good news. So he is going to paint uh, a poetic and powerful scene for us. Uh, before we dive in, I want to draw your attention to the everyone in verse 1. Isaiah 55 calls everyone to respond. Isaiah 49 forecasted that it's too light a thing, it's too small a thing for the servant of the Lord to restore the people of Jacob, Abraham's ethnic bloodline, that he would actually be a light for all the nations. So this is a call literally for anyone, for anyone and everyone to come as God beckons, to come drink from the spring of the water of life and live. It's a call for you, it's a call for me, And it's a call for all people everywhere, for the nations. So we'll work through the passage bit by bit. I hope that's not confusing. I hope it will be easy to follow, beginning in verse 1. God freely calls the thirsty, famished, and the broke. And first, he expresses the call metaphorically. So look, if you would, at verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Even the one who has no money, come, buy, and eat. This doesn't appear in every translation, but I think it is important. The chapter begins with an interjection, the word ho. And this arrests the attention. It signals that there's an important announcement to be made. The scene that Isaiah paints here with imagery pictures the market where the divine vendor calls out to passers-by. So we should picture a busy Mediterranean market and a vendor crying out, come. Come, come. Uh, That word is important. That imperative come reverberates throughout this verse. It occurs three times. And it's important to notice that this summons extends to everyone who thirsts, even the one who has no money. So the thirsty, those who sense their need, they're urged to come. The penniless, those with absolutely no resources, are eagerly beckoned. Overall, this verse highlights the existence of the need and, more importantly, free provision to meet that need. There is an abundant source of water for all who thirst and a rich feast for the famished. And unbelievably, this is a free offer. It will actually cost the purchaser nothing. That's why I said the offer seems too good to be true. Pick it up in the second part of verse 1. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So again, Isaiah is underscoring the nature of this free offer. Yet, the fact that it's free in no way diminishes the value. 
Again, as I said in the beginning, we're inclined to think that if something's free, it's just the swag, you know, the stuff we all get. Uh, maybe the marketing scheme, like the company pen or a stress ball with a company name on it. Usually free stuff has very little value. But Isaiah says what he's offering to us is like wine and milk. Very important to understand these words in their ancient Near Eastern context. Wine symbolizes the rich harvest and the abundance of the new creation. Uh, there's an um, important high point in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 25, where he foretells that on God's holy mountain, he will swallow up death forever, and he'll make a feast of the richest food for all people with well-aged wine. So it's the most sumptuous fare, the most expensive thing money can buy. Um, you're probably familiar with milk and how the promised land was foretold as a, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it was abundant in its provisions, the land that God provided for his people. So this is no meager meal. It's not just bread and water. It's the richest, most sumptuous feast. So though the offer extends to penniless people, you see in the passage, there's still a transaction. The verb buy is used on two occasions. So though this is free for the broke beneficiary, someone actually purchased this feast. It comes at a great cost, but not from the benefactor, the one who's penniless and urged to come uh, drink and eat freely. So I think this setting is easily illustrated. You know, imagine that you're invited out to lunch after today's service to your favorite steakhouse and your host picks up the tab, right? Just because it was free for you does not mean that it was free for them, right? Somebody actually paid for it. And the fact that it was free does not make it any less valuable or less enjoyable. In fact, some might argue if it's free, it's actually more enjoyable. You're not calculating how much this costs you while you're digging into that juicy steak. This is the kind of setting that Isaiah pictures for us. The thirsty, the famished, the broke are beckoned to come receive what's better than they could possibly imagine. Here's some reflections as we think about what Isaiah has for us. Do you realize that apart from God, you are thirsty and famished and broke? There is no other way to come to the true and living God than destitute, prostrate, on your knees. We don't come with our hands full full of self-righteousness and self-obsession, we have to come empty. We are commanded to come in humility, in contrition, acknowledging that apart from divine inter intervention, apart from the Lord our God, our salvation, dramatically intervening in our lives, we are thirsty and famished and broke. And the only thing that we bring to the table is need. That's the only thing that we contribute to the transaction. We don't come with our hands full. We come empty. Do you realize that that's how God beckons you to come into a living, saving relationship with him through what he offers in the Messiah? That's a little bit of personal reflection. Now let's think about what we have to bring to the nations as we consider our responsibility to go for the gospel. When we take the gospel out, we go with the greatest offer imaginable. We are summoning people. We are beckoning people to come eat and drink 
freely of the richest provision that God has provided solely by his grace. Of course, not everyone can acknowledge the value of what's being offered. Of course, so many, sadly most, don't have eyes to see and they actually don't have ears to hear what this genuine, sincere, richest offer is presented to them. But nonetheless, we can see the eternal value uh, through the illumination of the Spirit and God's work in our lives. God is offering the world something of limitless value in the gospel, and that's what we go with. We really have something eternally valuable to offer, something that is incredible news, the best thing worth sharing. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend, or more literally, why do you weigh out your money for not bread, for that which is not bread, and your wages, or your hard-earned cash, for that which does not satisfy? This is a veiled rebuke against idolatry and paganism. We discussed this more thoroughly in Isaiah 44, so we won't go back into it and unpack it completely, but this speaks against the idolatrous pagan tendencies of human nature, that we create gods of our own fashion, gods actually made in our own image and likeness, and they offer no salvation. All they bring is bankruptcy, vanity, and worthlessness. Isaiah really chides people for doing this uh, with brilliant sarcasm in Isaiah 44. You know, we take a block of wood that won't rot. We burn half of it and bake bread and warm ourselves, and the other half we create into a false god and cry out for deliverance. That's absolutely senseless, Isaiah says in Isaiah 44. Those who do so are deluded. They're feeding on ashes, on something that will not satisfy. And this is a thread that runs throughout all the scripture, but Isaiah's prophecy, you were made to live in relationship with the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth. You were made for union with him. You were made to know him, to serve him, to magnify him for all of his character and glory. And that's what fills the heart and life with satisfaction, meaning, and purpose. And we, when we exchange the truth of the living God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things rather than the creator, um, we are feeding on vanity and ashes. Like he says here in this passage, weighing out our money for not bread and our wages or our hard-earned cash for that which does not satisfy. Pursuing things that offer something but will never deliver. This is an indictment against all of our tendencies towards false worship, the worship of idols and false gods. It's a stern warning. Like Jeremiah says in his prophecy, uh, hewing out cisterns that actually won't hold water and will never satisfy. I'm fairly confident that this must have been the text that Jesus had in mind when he sat down with the woman at the well and asked for a drink, initiating that conversation, that gospel opportunity, and then saying to her, if you knew the one who was speaking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water something that really satisfies the soul, restoration into a relationship with the true and the living God. <clears throat> so think about this in relationship to Go Week and our responsibility to go to the nations with the gospel. When we go to the nations, we're calling them to turn from the vanity of idolatry 
into a real relationship with the one God maker of heaven and earth, the only true value, meaning, and purpose that life affords. That's what we're offering. And it is the greatest, the most staggering free offer that comes to us solely by God's grace. And this is what Paul was doing. You read through the book of Acts, and Paul has got this constant message or this constant refrain that people in their paganism and their idolatry, they're worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. But the creator has made full provision, ample provision for them to come, to come drink from the spring of the water of life and live, to come feast themselves on his eternal grace and receive forgiveness and life everlasting. That's the offer that we go with. And anything else that the world offers, that the nations in their pride and vanity offer, pales in comparison to this true offer of God's infinite grace. So we take great confidence when we go for the gospel in what we're calling people to. So that's the metaphoric call. In the second part of verse 2, the poetry and the imagery slowly fades into the background, and now Isaiah speaks more directly, and he lets us know what he's really getting at. So pick it up in the second half of verse 2. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that your soul may live. So in metaphoric terms, at the beginning of the passage, it was come, come, you've got to come, come by and eat the penniless, the thirsty, the broke. This sumptuous feast has been prepared for you. And now he tells us more directly what he means. How do you come? How do you buy? You come by listening. And the passage underscores this uh, with a really powerful verb construction. It's kind of redundant when you read it. It says, listen in an imperative and then an infinitive to listen immediately after. So it's an urgent plea. Listen, just listen to the word of the living God. And then he says the same thing differently. This is what you do in poetry. You tend to recycle ideas in parallel form. He says, incline your ear and listen, which means you have to make a deliberate choice to intake and ingest the word of the living God. And the result is, if you do so, your soul will feast. Your soul, your inner person, your life, the real you, you will live. So this is a plea to listen to the never-failing, unfading word of God. And then he gives us the result in what follows. So it was the call expressed metaphorically and then directly. And now verses 3 through 5 tell us about the result of listening to that call. And it is staggering. I hope you won't miss it. In summary form, this is the result. You will share in the eternal covenant blessings of the Davidic Messiah. Let me say that one more time so it doesn't just wash over with familiarity. You, a Gentile likely, uh, someone who doesn't come from Abraham and his family, who did not receive the oracles of God in the Old Testament, someone who was not constituted a part of the people of God in the Exodus. You, me, the nations, anyone and anywhere who will listen to the gospel message will receive the steadfast covenant mercies promised to the Davidic Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pick it up in verse 3, the second part. This is the result of listening to the call. 
and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The faithful mercies shown to David. Um, This is reiterating a theme or a note that Isaiah has played throughout. He foretold earlier in the book of the servant that the servant of the Lord would be made a covenant for the people. Um, And the blood that ratifies that covenant is the blood of Isaiah 53, that the servant would lay down his life and that by doing so in ceremonial fashion of ritual purity, he would sprinkle many nations. That the servant, all in and of himself, on his own merits of obedience, in his own propitiatory sacrifice, he is a champion in and of himself. He himself is the one who wins victory over all of his enemies, even crushing death itself. But here, those who are undeserving, those who are wicked, those who actually have no share in his battle and his victory are freely invited to partake of the blessings that they can come into covenant relationship with the true and living God based solely on the accomplishment of the servant and they can enjoy those blessings for all of eternity. This is a reference to the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that one of his descendants would rule over God's kingdom and God's people for all of eternity. Obviously, this reaches its apex in Jesus. He is lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the final David, the true David, who leads his people into victory and to an eternal covenant relationship with the living God. And this is what's promised to anyone, undeserving as we are, who will simply listen and incline their ear to the good news about him and response and respond. He says in verse four, again, referring to that future and final David, the one who was coming. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Witness is a concept that Isaiah has been developing. The witnesses of the idols are false and vain. Those who trust in false gods uh, will not enjoy deliverance and salvation. Um, Those who proclaim the message of false gods will be put to shame. They won't be vindicated. They'll be shown to be in the wrong. They'll be shown up. Israel was called to be the witnesses of the one true God, to proclaim his glory and character to the world and his saving purposes. But sadly, it's, it's completely senseless. They exchange the glory of God for pagan idols. Well, the the servant of the Lord is the one true witness, the one who would testify to God's people and to all the nations of the saving power and the character of Yahweh God, the true and living God, the faithful witness. Not only was he a witness of God's purposes, but he was a leader and commander of the people. This points to his role as Davidic Messiah. Just as God used David to shepherd his people, so also In a magnified way, in a greater fashion, God would use that final Davidic Messiah to be a commander and a leader for God's people. Look at verse 5. This is Yahweh, the Lord God, turning his attention to that future Davidic Messiah, addressing him directly. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation who knows you not will run to you. 
because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This speaks of the Messiah's exalted station, that foreign nations, nations that were not a part of the people of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, the people God constituted for himself, foreign nations who formerly had no relationship with Yahweh God, who had revealed himself in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the law, that they were going to flock to this one exalted eternal king. That because this king would be exalted, and we know how that happens, and that happens through many iterations. Ironically, he's exalted in his crucifixion. The Son of Man is lifted up. And then he's exalted to the highest place, the right hand of the Father in the resurrection and the ascension. That this Davidic king would be exalted and that the nations who didn't formerly know him would pay allegiance and swear fidelity to him because he would be glorified by the one God, maker of heaven and earth. As we pause to reflect on the last six verses, we've come through Isaiah um, 55, 1 through 6. Here are some things for us to consider. On the most direct level, this is the lowest hanging fruit. Are you listening carefully to God's word? Do you realize it offers you the most precious treasure and your very life depends on it? That's what's stressed here. You've got to listen. You've got to listen carefully. You've got to incline your ear. As we think about Go Week and our responsibility to go to these nations that God is winning for himself through the Messiah, God is accomplishing his purposes in our times through the Great Commission. He has glorified his servant Jesus in the cross, resurrection, and ascension. And right now, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are attaching themselves to the Davidic Messiah and enjoying God's steadfast mercies promised to David. This is the greatest enterprise the world has ever known. And you've got a front row seat and you've got to get in on it. God is beckoning you. He's summoning you to go with the gospel, this most incredible offer, so that the nations can proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven above and on earth beneath. So that's the first part of the message. God freely calls the thirsty, the famished, and the broke. I promise that the second part will go faster than the first part. All right, and the second part of the message is this. God reiterates the call for the spiritually bankrupt. This is a more direct assertion. Now Isaiah gets right to the point in the verses that follow. God offers the wicked, us, complete pardon. Look at verse 6. I believe that verse 6 is the heart of the chapter, that every arrow in the chapter points to this one ultimate imperative. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Shockingly, amazingly, the Lord is near. This is a relational term, not necessarily a spatial term. Obviously, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. But he's near relationally. He's beckoning that wicked though you are, penniless, broke, you can come into a saving relationship with him solely by his grace through his son. He's near to you. All you have to do is call on his name. Having heard about what he's done, through his son and the offering up of his life and his meritorious sacrifice, all you have to do is call on him through Jesus and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's fascinating how this verse is picked up in the New Testament and emphasized as the impetus for responding 
right now, today. Today is the day of salvation. Call in the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Seek him is the earnest appeal. Turn your life from your own ways back to him. And that's how the message progresses. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the call to seek him expanded. How do you seek him? You seek him in repentance. By turning from your own way, rebellion against God in thoughts and deeds. So not only external actions, but internal motivations. We need wholesale change, change from the inside out. How do you seek the Lord? You turn back from rebellion against him and his ways, and you turn toward him in repentant faith, in pure trust, the dependence of a child, humility and faith. Sinners must forsake their own ways and thoughts and turn back to the Lord to receive what he is freely offering in the sacrifice of his son. Um, and shockingly, the verse promises that the Lord will take compassion. So he will be moved to show pity, mercy, and forgiveness. He will abundantly pardon. In this text, Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah, is offering co complete acquittal. He will multiply forgiveness for wicked thoughts and actions. Truly, this is the most amazing offer, a deeply undeserved offer. As we reflect on that, the Lord is near. He freely offers complete pardon. And this is what we're taking to the nations as we go with the gospel, that God will not count our sins against us. As deeply stained and corrupt and pagan as we are, God offers, solely by his grace, complete acquittal and forgiveness. He will cancel out the record of debt that stands against us by nailing it to the cross of his son. Again, something that sounds too good to be true. It sounds beyond belief, but because of the greatness of our God, it is true. And then finally in this passage, um, Isaiah gives us three supporting reasons for this impassioned plea to forsake our wicked ways and turn back to God to receive his forgiveness and grace. So in verses 8 through, 10, he, 8 through 13, he offers us three reasons, and we can see that signaled by the way he uses the conjunction for. He's supplying reasons for this impassioned plea. The first reason is this. God is high above us. Pick it up in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Reason number one for why we should seek the Lord and turn from our wicked ways, for why we plea passionately for others to do the same, is because God's ways are infinitely higher than our ways. I think this has two shades of meaning. So I think directly what he's saying is the true and living God is transcendent. He is separate from us. He's high and exalted over his creation. He is something completely unmade. He's different and distinct. Uh, when the seraphim say, holy, 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 that's what they are exclaiming. The total otherliness of God. And again, I think this has two layers of meaning. Uh, one layer is 
God's thoughts and ways don't have correspondence to our thoughts and ways. I think especially in the gospel, uh, we would have never dreamed or imagined that God would solve the human problem of sin by suffering the consequences of sin himself, coming as Emmanuel, God with us. And then the transgressions of the world being nailed to him on the cross, suffering the just wrath of God against wickedness and the filth of human sin. We would have never dreamed that God would deal with sin in that kind of a way. But God's thoughts and his ways are infinitely beyond our thoughts and our ways. I think this also has a layer of meaning that points to the purity of God. Obviously, our thoughts and our ways are corrupt, tainted, perverse because of our sin. So we've got to repent and lay them aside and turn back to God to receive his word and what he's offering to us. That's reason one. God is high above us. Reason number two is because God's word is completely trustworthy and effective. This offer that sounds too good to be true, you can bank your life on it because God's word is completely trustworthy and effective. This is expressed in verses 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word is completely trustworthy and true. This is a theme with which Isaiah began the book of the servant. Remember, we developed that from Isaiah 40, that all flesh is grass and all of its beauty and glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands firm. It's certain and fixed and sure forever. And remember, from Isaiah's perspective, that is a wonderfully reassuring truth with the threats of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the idolatry and wickedness of God's people. Know that God's word stands firmly fixed and sure. And then Isaiah 55, he rounds out the whole message of those chapters with the same assertion. Just as the precipitation comes down from the heavens and accomplishes the effect for which God sent it, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, fully accomplishing God's purpose, so also the word of the Lord. That the word of the Lord never returns to him empty or void, but it always unilaterally accomplishes its purpose. God's word is a performative word. It carries within it the power to accomplish what it says, to achieve its purposes. So just like page one of the Bible, God said, let there be light, and there was light. His word is performative. It accomplishes his purpose according to his intention. So as far-fetched as this good news about the future Messiah from Isaiah's perspective might seem, as far off in the distance as God's salvation might seem, as unlikely as it might seem for the nations to actually flock to the Davidic Messiah and find refuge in him, the word of the Lord is certain and sure, regardless of who believes it or affirms it, and it will always accomplish its purpose. It's trustworthy, it's true, it's powerful, and that's why we can go to the nations. We can go to the nations, though the world is in the grip of pagan idolatry through the deceit of the devil, though the world is under the powers of darkness, we can go because we go with the most powerful explosive in all the universe, the word of the living God. It always achieves its purpose. It never returns vain. 
And the final reassurance or the final reason to respond by seeking the Lord while he may be found is in the last two verses. It's reason number three. God will eternally bless the one who responds in repentance. Why should we seek the Lord while he may be found? Because we can actually enjoy the eternal covenant mercies of David, eternal blessing, these verses. And in a beautiful way, though this is the end of the passage and message, don't miss this. Verses 12 through 13. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which shall not be cut off. In Isianic language, in language recycled from the Old Testament, He's pointing forward to new creation. The gospel affects not only personal transformation, but the gospel ultimately affects all of the cosmos. As Paul says, and I, I am, and excuse me, Paul didn't say anything in Isaiah. He said something in Ephesians, though. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 1.10, that one day all things, things in heaven and things on earth, will be summed up in Jesus. That one day, all of the created realm will be restored and renewed and the earth will radiate with the glory of God as was intended in the very beginning. And Jesus, or from Isaiah's perspective, looking forward, the Davidic Messiah is the one person who's actually going to make that happen. So the thorns of the curse will be replaced with the joy of new creation. He uses language that seems to echo the Exodus. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. What God had done for his people bringing deliverance in the past, he will bring a greater, ultimate, and eternal deliverance for his people in the future. And this will be a memorial for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. So just like a commander or a conqueror builds a memorial for himself to testify of his victories the new creation will be a memorial of the character, the glory, the majesty of God throughout the epochs of eternity. So here's the question we must consider at the end of Isaiah 55. What will you do with God's free offer of eternal joy, peace, and salvation? Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. The Lord is near. Seek him while he may be found. And being a benefactor of that offer, the church of the living God, what will we do as we consider the call to go to the nations? You know, are we going to let our light hide under the bushel? Are we going to proclaim far and wide what God has done through the Davidic Messiah to bring the wicked back to himself? That full provision has been made. That anyone, everyone can seek the Lord while he may be found. The penniless, the famished, the broke, that they can come and drink from the spring of the water of life and live. Hear the word of the Lord concerning um, the Messiah and what he would accomplish through the gospel and embrace him and believe in him and take that message as you go. That's the message of Isaiah 55. Let's pray for God's power and strength. Our great God, we want to come to you in humility, in contrition, we want to rejoice in all that you've done for us through Jesus. We know that we are completely undeserving.
that truly the only thing we bring to the transaction, to the table, is need, dependence. Uh, But we are so thankful that you have made ample provision. We pray that you would please empower us to bring this message to the nations, the destitute, to those who are far off, without hope and without God in the world, that we would tell them about Jesus. And it's his mighty name that we pray. Amen.